Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, I'm the Daily Edition. I'm John Green, and I'm your host, and thanks for being with me today. I appreciate the, you listening today and joining me in this, these studies. Uh, here we are on March the 11th, 2021, and so we're going to skip forward just a little bit from where we were in Jeremiah. We're not, we don't cover every verse in Jeremiah in this lectionary. Um, I didn't make the lectionary. It just is what it is. There's an arc that's being established in the way that these are set up. And so here we are in Jeremiah 10, verses 11 to 24. And you remember yesterday's lessons, God had said, there's nothing good. There's, I don't have anything to work with. I don't have anybody to work with. And he's announcing this all through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is being rejected. You know, he, he does. He's not getting the attention of the people, and God told him he wouldn't get the attention of the people. And now God begins to lay out the case, and it's a case that's similar to the case that Paul makes in Romans 1, actually. And it's the same case that, that God makes to Job, frankly. Because when Job makes his uh, complaint after complaint after complaint, it's just, where is God? Why can't I have a hearing with God? God shows up, right? And then he makes a statement in God's entire, not defense, because that's not what it is. It's God's entire uh, response to Job's complaint is based in creation. It's based in where, where were you when I did all these things? Do you understand all these things, Job? Um, because I, I believe that the answer is more or less, Job, in order for me to answer your specific complaint about what's going on in the world right now and what's going on in your life particularly, it would require you to understand everything that's happened since the beginning of time. And you don't have that wisdom. You don't have that knowledge. I don't have any way of giving it to you. What you need is humility, and that's what Job gave him back. I spoke without knowledge. I repent in dust and ashes of what I said. Before that, he'd covered himself in ashes to, to mourn, and now he's repenting in dust and ashes just the same way that the uh, Ninevites did in the time of Jonah because he spoke without knowledge, things too wonderful for me. God's revealed these things to me, and so God's appeal is always going to be based in who he is, and he's the one who created all things, but that also is not just an appeal to power, it's also an appeal to wisdom. And knowledge. He has wisdom and knowledge that we don't have because he was able to create all those things by the word of his mouth. But more than that, he's been there since before that creation happened. So there's probably stuff that we're never going to know because it preceded creation. But everything that's happened since creation, he can see. And we see only this limited little box of things, no matter how much we know, we're still only seeing in this limited little box. And we only see certain kinds of things we can't see forward. So it's not just that we can't see what's everything that's happened before us, it's that we don't know the end of all things. I mean, what we know is, is the end of all things will be in the last day when he comes again to judge the world and bring the kingdom, but we don't know how we get from there to there, and every little thing matters. And so that's God's argument here against the people in the 7th century B.C., is, is that the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And he's saying, you worship all these gods, and they're not gods at all. They don't have any wisdom to impart. They don't have any knowledge to impart. And he goes back to an argument that he makes time and time again, and, and that is, is that every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there's no breath in them. They're not real. They're not tangible beings. They're things. 
And if you made it, how could it be a God? It doesn't make any sense. And you can't get knowledge from these things you make. And so you're stupid and without knowledge because you're not coming to the fount of knowledge and the fount of wisdom, the one who created all things and therefore knows all things. And his appeal then constantly goes back to that um, reality that he that he predates all things that he that he therefore has access to knowledge and wisdom and power and the power matters because he's telling them in everything that he does to repent to fear him the one who can bring judgment on them and this is the powerful judgment here behold i'm slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time and i'll bring distress on them that they may feel it it's an odd statement, but it kind of goes back in my mind, back to the darkness in the time of the plagues, the darkness that he brought over the land of Egypt, but not over the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived. And it's a darkness that could be felt. The distress that they're going to feel is profound, is the statement that God's bringing against them, and they're trying to, they misunderstand everything because they're not searching from wisdom. They're chasing after these other gods. He says, the shepherds are stupid, and they do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. And then he tells them how that judgment's going to come, a voice, a rumor. Behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. And remember, that was his original promise, that he was going to bring the peoples of the north, and they were going to come again. Jerusalem and they were going to destroy the city and take the people away and then it begins with Jeremiah's plea I know O Lord that the way of man is not in himself we can't know all things that it's not in man who walks to direct his steps correct me O Lord but in justice not in your anger lest you bring me to nothing and that's the proper attitude of humility to take before the Lord who has created all things. It's the, that's the kind of fear. It's that reverent fear that recognizes Him for who He is and recognizes ourselves for who we are. And that's when we have a teachable spirit. And so that's what the attitude of repentance that God was looking for in the people and is looking for in His people today sounds exactly like that. I know, O Lord, that in the way of man, that the way of man is not in Himself. It's not in man who walks to direct His steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. It's beautiful prayer of repentance. If we could just sort of embrace that and live that, then we would be moving in the right direction. And, and we would be in a place where God could speak to us and direct us. Because he appeals to justice. He appeals to the grace and the love of God who doesn't want to bring wrath and anger and judgment against us. He wants us to walk in His ways and to walk with Him. Jesus, remember, had been arguing yesterday with the Pharisees and He had been telling them that He's the light of the world. He had been telling them that, that He speaks and judges not His own words but, but the words of the Father who sent Him. And in that way, what He's essentially saying that what they could hear at least in the very best way they could hear that he is a prophet that God speaks to him and then send and and he speaks the words of God but what he's making a claim to is being something more than a prophet because he's he's saying that he's a hundred percent faithful in his representations 
that that there's a perfect transmission of the message in word as well as meaning that he brings to the table in his prophecy because he gets it directly from the Father, and there's no misinterpretation there. He, he's not making an interpretation. He knows it in the same way the Father who speaks it and who sent him knows it. And here he continues to make that same argument, but he says, I'm going to go away, and you'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin where I'm going. You cannot come. It's, it's a powerful, powerful, awful thing to hear. You'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Because it's a very different thing that he later in the book of John at the Last Supper says to his disciples that they will come to him and that they know where he's going. And so here he's, he's telling this group of people they don't know and they can't come and they'll die in their sins. And it's because ultimately he knows they're going to reject him. They're going to reject his claim to be Messiah. They're going to reject him and they're going to have him put to death. He says, they ask, is he going to kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? They're, they're suggesting that he's going to do the worst possible thing. And why they think that, I have no earthly idea. But, but they're, they're making this leap in logic that, that still says, I'm thinking from below. And then he goes on to say, you are from below, I'm from above, you're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. And that's not just a physical death that he's speaking about there, he's speaking about a, a death for eternity, that you're going to die in your sins, you'll be unforgiven, there'll be no hope for you, there'll be no life for you, you're going to miss out on eternal life. And then they ask him the critical question, who are you? You ask the right question. Finally, you've asked the right question because they're so confused. And he says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. And he says, they didn't understand that he'd been speaking about the Father. And then he goes on and uses that same metaphor again. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he. Remember when he says that he had to be lifted up. That's exactly what he told Nicodemus. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the same thing would happen. And he says, it's only after that that you're going to know who I am and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. In other words, me arguing with you today is not going to get you where you need to be. You're not going to know the truth based on the argument that we're making. We're, you're only going to know the truth about this after the fact. After you've lifted me up and after the resurrection. It's when the Holy Spirit's poured out that they're going to finally know this thing because they're going to know based on the resurrection what's happened. And then Jesus says, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Oh, how I'd love to be able to say that, but I don't, and I can't. And it would be an absolute lie. And then, amazingly, after this, people began to believe in Him, it says. And He said to the ones who believe in Him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And again, that goes back to what I was trying to talk about yesterday, which is, is that, that the way that we continue in Him is to abide in His word, to be truly His disciples, and then know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's not enough just to know the word. That's not what abiding means. Abiding means that you not only know the word, but you live it as well. 
it's the two things working together and you can't live it unless you know it and if you know it then you're responsible for living it and that's paul's argument in romans 5 12 to 21 he says that the law <coughs> brings about death just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin wasn't counted when there's no law. And so Adam had been given a law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and he broke the law, and so there's a penalty and a price to pay for that. It's a sin because he transgressed against the law that God had given him. But he says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of, of Adam. So it's different stuff than what Adam did because there's a, a, a law, a natural law, that we know from creation. That's Paul's argument, remember, in the very first chapter here. But his argument is you're responsible for what you know. And, and you're responsible for living a life like the law you know says to live. So abiding is not just knowing, it's doing. It's both those things at the same time. And then Paul goes on to make this incredible argument that, that says is that, that while Adam's sin brought death to all men, it's a, it, because we all sinned, <clears throat> then the free gift of Jesus is, is that one man's righteousness is then shared with everyone who believes. And so that free gift, that grace that brings justification so far surpasses it that it shows something remarkable about God. It shows that what God spoke to Moses when he talked of himself in Exodus 34 was true, that the grace exceeds the judgment by many, many fold. He's slow to anger. He is all the things that he said he was. And the the justification brought to us through the the death of jesus christ and the life we live because the life of jesus both before and after the crucifixion is is evidence of grace abounding which is what he says grace abounding to sinners here and, and so he is so enamored of of the implications of the the giving of of christ the giving of his life, the giving of his righteousness to us, that imputation of Jesus' righteousness to those who are baptized in his name and who believe in his name and who abide in his word. Paul is just completely bowled over by the idea and the implications of that reality of just how incredibly gracious God is. And he finishes and says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So while sin may have increased, what it did was it gave an opportunity for grace to be even greater. And that's why confession is such an important thing. Confession just agreeing with God on what the nature of sin is. It's saying, yes, I'm a sinner, and I'm a sinner in these ways. And, and what, he's, what Paul's point is is to say that, that the only way we can know grace, the only way we can know how amazing grace truly is, is to confess and to agree with God, yes, you've defined this as sin and I agree with you. I see it now in my flesh because you've given me the Holy Spirit. I wish I might see these things. And because I see how great my sin is, I know how truly amazing grace is. 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing more beautiful could be written.